Good morning, everybody. Okay, how many of you got here at 11.15? Because you forgot that today was the service change time. Anyone? That's pretty good. That's good. Uh, well, I went to a Christmas party last night, and I learned something about, uh, about greatness. It was up in the attic, <clears throat> and I learned that Barb Esterline is the greatest ping pong player at Rio Vista Community Church and maybe in the Western world. Um, <laughs> I was sitting in a, uh, uh, eating and my daughter, Delaney, came running over to me and she said, Dad, look at Barb Esterline. And I had seen her walk up you know, to the table with somebody and I, you know, I'm going to be honest, she's, she's short. You know, I didn't really think much of it. I, I thought, well, that's going to be kind of a disaster and I'll see the ball rolling around on the floor a lot and, and hitting the net. And so, but then Delaney comes running over and she says, look at Mrs. Esterline. And I look over. And she is just smoking somebody. I think it was Bill Kelly. She just, you know, and just crushing him. And the, and the ball's going on the floor, but it's because it's winging past his head every 10 seconds. And so I realized, I learned some things about, about Barb. First, I, I knew that she had to be a high school athlete because she was coordinated. And then I thought she, she must have been a college athlete because she had that eye of the tiger. You know what I'm saying? Like there were, you know, I look, I, and of course, what did I do as the father? I said, Delaney, look into her eyes. Do you see the fire? Take the fire, Delaney. You know, and she dove out the window and beat up the first person she saw. I don't know what she did. But, but uh, so Barb had all that. And then I also knew that somewhere she had a ping pong table in her uh, patio or something. And I learned from Barb afterwards, after she had crushed every opponent and gone undefeated, I thought maybe Gwen McCulloch had a chance because Gwen walked up and she, she picked up the paddle like you pick it up when you know what you're doing. You know what I'm talking about? You're not just holding the handle. You're, you're holding it by the rubber and you're going. And Gwen did pretty good, but no match, no match. And so uh, I, I asked Barb after how she had become the greatest in this sphere of the amateur ping pong world. And she said that when she was a kid, she learned how to play ping pong on her kitchen table with a loaf of bread as a net. And I don't know what, you know, a spoon or something as the paddle. And, and, and so she was just, she is the greatest ping pong player in the sphere of amateur ping pong players that I happen to know. And so um, we're going to, there is a measure of greatness in every sphere that there is. You ever think about that? Uh, Every organization, every endeavor has this measure of greatness. And people who are especially into the status of greatness, they will invent awards and and, and ways to receive recognition within that sphere, you know, of greatness, right? Like the most hot dogs anybody's ever eaten in one sitting, you know, they have an award for that, right? And it's on ESPN when it happens now. Um, but there are, every sphere has its own measure of greatness. Last night we were watching the Heisman, the Heisman Awards, right? To, for the greatest football, the, the, the most outstanding football player in that season, they award uh, the Heisman Trophy, which they gave to Mark Ingram last night from Alabama, But, you know, there are some spheres that are a little bit more profound than that. Uh, One that's been in the news a lot, the Nobel Peace Prize, right? It is for the sphere of sort of global political uh, uh, um, success and and, and getting people to work together to to make the world a better place. And and I have right here from Alfred Nobel, his purpose for creating the Nobel Peace Prize. He he said the winner will have, during, during uh, during the preceding year, the winner shall have done the most or the best work for fraternity between nations, for the abolition or reduction of standing armies, and for the holding and promotion of peace congresses. Right? So this was Alfred Nobel's way of establishing a measure of greatness in that sphere of sort of global relations, global, global community. 
um, and we measure everyone against that standard. Uh, another one, the, Con uh, the Congressional Medal of Honor. This is a very profound award. It's the highest honor that the United States government gives for, for, for uh, military valor. And I love the phrase that they use as they describe what this medal is for. It says it's for gallantry and intrepidity in battle. That's pretty slick. Gallantry and intrepidity in battle. Highest honor you can receive in the United States in that sphere, that sphere of, of military valor. Um, I had a, a great, uh, interesting conversation with a guy who spoke at a workshop that I was at a few weeks ago, and he talked about another one that was pretty fascinating. Um, <clears throat> he spent many years, 20 years or 20 years plus, I think he still does it, um, on Wall Street and in the, the high, high business world. And uh, his job, one of, one of the things that he did as a consultant was he helped big, 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 very high-end companies, you know, the Apple computers of the world uh, and Coca-Cola's and those types of companies. He helped them identify and hire executives, CEOs, you know, the, for the companies that are, you know, are too big to fail and all that sort of thing. And uh, he did that. And one of the things that he's observed over the last 20 or 25 years of doing this is that they have what they call a walk-away number, Okay. And this is the number when they're at the negotiating table and they're down to the bitter end and he says, okay, what's your walkaway number? We've got to figure out what this guy's walkaway number is. What is the least he'll take without walking away from the table? And he said what he's noticed over these last few decades is that the walkaway number has gone up exponentially, far outstripping the, uh, the rate of inflation or um, the, the, the size of the economy or any of those things that people are demanding a higher and higher and higher, exponentially higher walk-away number. And the only explanation, it, it's far more money than they would need to buy anything they wanted to, to buy or have as much security as they wanted to have or leave as much money as they wanted for their children. It's far more money than you accomplish physical things with. The only explanation is that it, was, it has become the trophy the measure of greatness in the sphere of that business world. It's how they, they identify greatness. Well, we're going to talk about greatness today. We've been talking about Jesus coming into the world, why he came into the world, what he came to do. Well, let me tell you one of the things he came to do. He came to completely redefine greatness. He came into the world to recapture God's intention for what it means to be great in this world and the world to come. In coming into this world, Jesus turned the rules upside down. We're going to talk about that. Let's pray. Lord God, as we approach your scriptures, as we approach your word, I ask that you would speak to us through it, and not just in the sense of exchanging information, but that you would identify in each and every person here, in their heart and in their mind, in their will, the exact message that they need to, to understand today from your word, that you would speak to them, that we would all leave here uh, changed, understanding more who you are, what is your character, and what, what this world and what this sphere is about. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Well, in Matthew chapter 20, it's probably the, the greatest place in Scripture where Jesus himself 
articulates what it means to be great in the kingdom of God. What it means to be great in his kingdom instead of what it means to be great in the world's kingdom and in the world's sphere of greatness. So I want to read that for you. It's, uh, it's uh, Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 through 28. And um, hear, hear the word of, of, of the Lord. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee, that was James and John, they were brothers, and they were, James was one of the first disciples, and they were very close, they were in the inner circle of Jesus, James, John, and Peter sort of became the inner circle, they were the, the only ones that saw the transfiguration, which is when Jesus showed himself in his glory, and the, and the prophets appeared, and they were the only three to see that, um, John was the only disciple that stood at the foot of the cross when Jesus was crucified, all the other disciples went into hiding, so these were some key Key. These, not only were the disciples key, these guys were key among the disciples. So their mother, God bless her, goes to Jesus. And she, uh, the, mother, uh, the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. Now just imagine this, okay? You know, Jesus comes into the world, right? And he's a carpenter. You know, he, he's just wearing clothes. He's just kind of like you and me, you know? And so this woman, there he is, and this woman comes in. She comes in and does one of these. Oh, sire. You know, or whatever. See, and it's kind of probably a little weird, you know, a little awkward. You know, you've never, I've never seen anyone else that ran up and did this to Jesus in his inner circle. So she starts giving him this formal language, right? This language of stature. And she kneels before him and asks, and, says, and asks him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? And she said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right and one at your left, in your kingdom. Oh. See, see, Jesus, I know that you're, you're ushering in this kingdom, right? And there's all this energy going on right now, and you're talking about the kingdom. Jesus had been teaching on the kingdom. In fact, Tom is going to be uh, teaching from that. He's going to be teaching from the teaching. Tom's going to be teaching about the kingdom of God and what Jesus said the kingdom of God is like and what happens in the kingdom of God. And so Jesus had been, uh, in, in these three years of his public ministry, he'd been teaching and explaining and unfolding what the real kingdom of God is like. And you might think, well, what's the big deal? You just tell them what it's like. Well, you're going to see here that no matter how much you, you tell us things, we don't always grasp those things. We tend to, to stay in the sphere in which we, we find our home. So Jesus had been teaching on the kingdom. So she's picked up bits and pieces of this kingdom thing. And what she's gathering is this, okay? It's the world's kingdom, okay? What's Jesus going to do? Um, he's going to come in and he's going to build a kingdom. His words. He has just said... Shortly before this, he's called, he's called the disciples together and he's told them, in my kingdom, you will all sit on a throne around the kingdom. You, you will, uh, you will uh, rule over the 12 tribes of Israel. And he gave them all this stuff. And so she's got all these things ringing in her ears. And she's thinking like the, like the world thinks about greatness. And so she makes this request because in that day and age, what gave you security and wealth and power was stature, status for your family. So that's why mom was there and may have been the whole crew. She's come to them, the boys are with her, and she says, make my sons, I mean, you know, the 12 disciples are great and it's great that they're all getting a throne, but could you make my two boys the ones that are on your right and on your left? Thereby, in this world's sphere, increasing our stature and status and security. That's what she was asking. Common request. 
So Jesus answered her, You do not know what you are asking. Think of, the, think of what's resonating in those words that we know now, but she didn't know then. You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink this cup that I am about to drink? They said to him, We are able. He said to them, You will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. Notice he didn't say that no one gets to sit at his right hand or in left hand. Notice he didn't say they couldn't be the ones. What he said was this, I'm getting ready to drink a cup that you do not understand. And when he said that cup, let me tell you what he meant. The Old Testament understanding of that cup was the wrath of God poured out. Notice that he called it my cup. Jesus had no wrath of God to be poured out on him. He was sinless, the Son of God. Are you able to drink my cup? And what did they say? Of course. Because why? Because they were living in the sphere of this world. And in this world, with power and, and with military might, which is what they were expecting. You see, Jesus had been playing this mild-mannered stuff, right? They're thinking, he's been doing this shepherd stuff and gentle as a lamb and healing people. And it's been all nice and touchy-feely. But what he's done is he's built a, he's built a coalition, right? He's gonna, and the next move is the militia. All right, there are people that are out to get him. There are people that want to kill him. But now even the Roman government, the most powerful nation in the world with the most horrifying army in the world is afraid to mess with this guy a little bit because he's building this grassroots movement. And mom's tapping into this and so are the boys. And so when, when Jesus says, hey, are you able to drink my cup? They say what? Of course, sure, we're able to pour out the wrath of God on these people that have been oppressing us with you. We're ready to pick up those swords. We're not afraid. We're not afraid of the greatness in the sphere of this world. And we are ready to stand with you in power and might and take over. That's what they had to say. That's what they thought he meant. And little did they know, I can imagine Jesus thinking, little did they know that they stood with their toes hanging over a precipice, ready to tip over into the abyss. In this world and the, and the one to come. But they wanted to stand by Jesus. And Jesus said no. He said, it's not for me to grant who sits at my right and, who, and at my left. In other words, it's not for me to define greatness in this moment. That is for the ones who my Father has prepared the place. So then what happens? Well, the family leaves. They're kind of talking about it, whatever. And the word gets out what, what mom asked. Right? And the disciples are, you know, they're standing around the water cooler talking about it, right? And it, did you hear what James, those guys, those sons of Zebedee, I know why they call them sons of thunder. Because they're a bunch of... Loudmouth, that whole family. I remember when he was this big, the fact that he thinks that he gets to be there and I don't get to. That's what they're talking about. They're not, they're not indignant. Here's what it says. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. They're not indignant because of the hubris of these two men to ask their king in this new 
in this new order, in this new sphere, to, to, to have positions of honor and power. That's not why they're mad. They're mad because they didn't ask first. You see, they're just like you and me. They're just, they're struggling. They're struggling to understand this different world. Do you ever think about that? God has been unfolding this redemptive plan for all of history so that in that moment, we could understand the difference between His kingdom and the one that will perish, the one in which we live. All throughout human history, they've been seeing it. They've been getting hammered with it. Stories, everything else. Abraham, you're going to bless the nations. You know, Adam and Eve, your, your, your offspring is going to crush Satan's head. All through history, they've been getting this message about uh, the difference between this kingdom that's going to perish and the one to come that's going to be eternal and it's going to reflect the character of God. And still in this moment, they don't get it. They're just like you and me. So Jesus says this. He calls them together and he says, you know that the rulers of the, of the Gentiles lord it over them. The, new, the, the rulers, the rulers of, the, of the, the world. They lord it over them. And their great ones ex- exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Think about the power of that language. Now, slave back then was in some ways different than we understand a slave, but the point was a slave might be an indentured servant that had sold themselves to pay off a debt, or they may have been someone captured during a, a war, and it might have been part of the, of the price that was paid by the, the defeated nation. They'd send people as slaves. But these were people whose rights had been eliminated, stripped from them, and they were submitted. They were submitted to whoever their slave master was. Well, Jesus says... But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. They must volitionally, they must by choice, submit themselves to you and your will and your needs. Stunning, earth-shattering, upside down. Even as the Son of Man, and here he fills in the blanks, even as the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Think about that statement. Even as the Son of Man, the God of the universe revealed in the flesh, with all rights and privileges of a king, eternally, came not to be served, but to serve, and gave his life, as a ransom for many. So Jesus took this cup, which they didn't understand, but soon they would, just in a few days. And he said, one day, to be great in my kingdom, you will drink this cup with me. And what they didn't understand in that moment is that Jesus made it possible by drinking the cup of God's wrath that even those men who stood there imagining their status in the new kingdom would not face the wrath that they so did not understand even in that moment. So Jesus told them in a very simple, worldly, earthly sense, yes, you'll drink the cup with me, 
you'll suffer with me. But it's my cup. It's my cup for you. And that is the nature of greatness in the kingdom of God. There will be a ransom to be paid, but it won't be paid by the Roman government to my new kingdom for all the taxes and oppression that they've laid upon us. It will be a ransom that will be paid by me to the Father on behalf of all who will trust in me. Words that they did not understand until just a few days later. The difference between greatness in this world and greatness in God's world is this. To be great in God's kingdom, you have to be a servant in this world. God has given us a mission, and we always say what that mission is. Here in our church, if I asked you to say it, many of you probably could, to lead people into a growing relationship with Christ. That is our mission in this world. But you know what our mission is in the big sense, and the eternal sense? It is to build the kingdom of God. It is eternal. It is unchangeable. It is perfect. In it, there is no war. There is no human sphere. Whereby... Power lords it over, the strong lord it over the weak. And status is defined by how much you have that will soon be gone. That's why we exist as Christians in this world. It's why the church was put in this world. It's why Jesus came to this world to build his kingdom, a kingdom that nothing can overcome. But to build that kingdom in this world, God has revealed his character to us. And he didn't just do it by telling us, right? I mean, that's how, you, that's how you teach people about God, right? You tell them, right? You tell them. You tell them. It, it works with your friends that don't, that don't know, know Jesus, right? It works with your unchurched friends. You go, you knock on their door, and you go, hey, friend, let me tell you about God. God is this, God is that, God is the other thing, and here's how you're not those things. And if you'd be those things, then you'd be okay with God. That's, what, that's what, the way it works, right? It works really good. No. Well, why? Well, God knew that too. You know, he did tell us. He sent us the law, right? First of all, he said the very created order is the law of God. It's written on our hearts. We can just tell by looking around that there's a God. But then he sent us the law and he told us the law. And when he did that, he told us two things. He said, one, here I am. Here is my character. Here is what I'm like. Here is the way the kingdom of God looks because it flows from my character. And number two, you are completely unable to follow after my character because of your sin what he told us with the law but then but then he said now i'm going to show you hmm. i wonder i wonder if this speaks to me about how people know the nature and character of god and the quality of his kingdom and what defines greatness therein it is when we show people as god did with us and so here he comes into the world, the God who created everything on this earth comes to it and cares about widows and about orphans. And I don't just mean people whose spouse has died and children who don't have a parent. You can be an orphan in any sphere. The only thing it takes to be an orphan in this world is to choose a sphere that is less than God's sphere in His kingdom. A sphere that will perish 
that isolates you and separates you and protects you from God's eternal sphere. Jesus cared about the widows and orphans, but he didn't just care about them in this philosophical way I'm talking. He literally cared about the widow and the orphan. As our, as our friend uh, over at Mount Bethel, if you ever get a chance to go over there, great church. Uh, he says this, he cares about the least, the lost, and the left out. That was his whole ballgame. You, you ever think about that? He comes into the world in a feeding trough. I mean, manger is a nice word, but that's where they fed the animals, okay? And the little things we build and put out in our yard with the nice clean hay, that's nice, but it was probably like a cave that they kept animals in. And it smelled like animals, places where they keep animals. And they had to move things out of the way that animals do to go in there and have this baby. And I got news for you. He probably wasn't the first kid that was ever born back then in a little bitty nothing town to a little bitty nothing couple into the life of a tradesman living among other normal people who you will never know or hear of. This was not a new story, but it was how God came into the world to unfold and to reveal His character and His plan to save it. Totally upside down. And despite our defection from Him, from His perfect love, wisdom, justice, honor, even despite our own defection, He still desires that no one should die. And the only way for him to accomplish this and his purpose is to do what he has done. And he reveals it to us even even hundreds of years before these events through the prophet Isaiah. Listen to what it says in this prophecy. Many, many, many ages before the coming of Jesus. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. That was his plan all along. So the Apostle Paul summarizes it this way. Philippians 2, 5 through 11, Paul's writing this letter to the church at Philippi. And he, he sort of explains this whole dynamic of the way Jesus came into the world and what that means for for a follower of Jesus. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. The first half of that passage explains how Jesus came into the world as a servant. And then the punchline was, that is how Jesus achieved, acquired, demonstrated greatness, which is reflected in the fact that every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So let, let me leave you with this. Listen closely. It's, it's just weird and tricky. The greatest greatness is total abandonment for the sake of the greatest cause. 
the greatest greatness there is in the universe is a total abandonment of everything that you have to the greatest cause. Now the hard part is, life, for many people, for all of us, is a journey toward what that greatest greatness is. And we try to pick a sphere that we can operate in, and we try and pick a sphere that is as big as we think we can pull off with our gifts and abilities and resources. We all do that. But Jesus came into the world to say, there is a sphere that is eternal and unchangeable and perfect, worth living for in this finite, temporary world, even worth dying for. Can you imagine, after they had this conversation, which, by the way, was shortly after Jesus had talked to the rich young ruler. You remember that story? The rich young ruler came to Jesus, said, what do I need to do to inherit the kingdom of heaven? What he was saying was, hey, I've got everything else. What do I need to do to get this? Right? It's kind of like this award I won. In, uh, I brought this. This was my sphere of greatness when I was uh, a kid. It's 1978, Song of Norway, Shuffleboard Champion. That's right. You can applaud. Uh, longer. Um, no, I'm just... I won this because I was the only participant. Um, I didn't give up because I didn't know what I was. I didn't know I was playing. I, I, they gave me a stick and a thing, and they said, "Push the thing," and they handed me this. It's a really expensive little trophy. My father will tell you. Um, but you know what, though? I, I guess here's the thing: the grandest. The grandest endeavors in this world, no matter how wonderful and great and awesome and profound we think they are, when they are laid down next to this, this kingdom of God, they, they look a lot like this. So, I go back to the walk away number. I was thinking about this week for myself, um, and, and I'm not telling you this because I'm really talking about you, I'm, I really am talking about me. I was thinking about this for myself, and you know, I guess in, in our world, in my world, in the kingdom of God, if in the, if in the, if in the world, the walkaway number is that highest amount I can achieve and, and acquire to demonstrate my greatness in whatever sphere or spheres I choose, then I guess that that the walkaway number in, in the God's kingdom is upside down. And the question is, how small can I become? How much can I produce versus how much I consume for myself? And the funny thing about it is I don't know that I would ever know that I had achieved greatness until I didn't even think about it at all. Like the guy who won the award, the award for being the most humble person in the world, and they took it away from him because he accepted it. So let me finish the story for you with James and John, the brothers whose mother came and tried to get him a sweet spot in the kingdom of God. Right? Let me let me finish the story. Um, shortly after that was told, 
James and John and the other disciples who were ready for Jesus to take up arms and do miraculous, powerful things and demonstrate the power of God and wipe people out the Old Testament style. They watched Jesus uh, continue to face these challenges uh, with no military response, right? And he, he didn't run, he didn't hide, but he started going and, and getting arrested and he started getting confronted and he started getting beaten and all these. And they watched this man that they had held in such esteem in their world of greatness, he was at the top of it as they understood greatness. And they watched him uh, over the next several days walk down the path to his own destruction. And they watched him get the, the floggings, the beatings, and then eventually they saw him dragging a cross down this dirty road with people making fun of him, betting over his clothes, mocking him. I mean, a cross was, a, it was a, a criminal execution. It was like dragging your electric chair to where you got to go plug it in. And they watched him drag it and fall down and get beaten and spit on and everything else. And they stuck it in the, on the top of a trash heap outside the, the city and they stuck him on it like they'd stuck a thousand before him and they'd stick a thousand after between two other guys. And the king of greatness died. And in that moment, they were left hanging in eternity for three days. Because greatness as they had understood it had been utterly destroyed in their face. But something happened. Something happened that redefined grace for them, that redefined greatness. that took it and turned it upside down and said, the greatest among you will be the least. He rose from that grave. And I think that when he did that and they saw his faith, I think they started remembering every conversation that they had ever had. And instead of hearing, you'll be sitting on a throne next to me, they heard, the first will be last. <clears throat> and my kingdom is not of this world. And they, they heard the words that he told the rich young ruler when he said, all right, well, you've done everything. You've achieved all this worldly status. You obey the law. You've got all your money. You've got all your status. All you need to do now is give, give everything away to the poor. They heard that story in a different way in that moment that they saw his face. And they said, oh, this battle we fight is not with swords. So here's the rest of the story. James was executed with a sword by Herod Agrippa. Oh, by the way, Herod's name was Herod the great. John was exiled to the Isle of Patmos where he had a vision captured in the book of Revelation of God's kingdom. John went through life building churches, planting churches, getting persecuted, ministering, doing the same kind of stuff Paul did and finally he, he survived. He didn't get martyred but he got thrown out on the Isle of Patmos on a rock to be left for dead. And he had a vision. And, 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 and here's the end of the story. Revelation verse four, or chapter 4, verses 9 through 11. Whenever the living creatures give glory, this is around the throne in heaven in God's kingdom. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy 
our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by you will they, uh, by your will were they created, and have their being. So here's the end of the story. James is already gone. James is already sitting among those elders. You get it? The 24 elders. That was 12 disciples, and that was the 12 tribes of Israel. And they were sitting around the throne in, in, in John's vision as he finally sees the kingdom of God in all its glory. And they're sitting around this throne, and James is there, and, and, and John is looking into this kingdom, and, and he's, he's seeing the disciples, and he's, he's seeing these elders, and, and he gets his crown that was prepared for him by the Father in this new world order. And what does he do with the crown? He lays it where it belongs. Do you know who died on the same day as John F. Kennedy? Anybody? Same day as John F. Kennedy. John F. Kennedy, big sphere, great in the, great in the big sphere, whatever you think of his politics, certainly this was a guy who was, was great in his sphere. You know who died on the same day he died? C.S. Lewis. He wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, one of the greatest Christian thinkers of all time. Certainly in the modern era, maybe the greatest. Brilliant Christian, led scores of people to Christ, convinced skeptics with his wisdom, died on the same day that John F. Kennedy died. Do you know who died on the same day as Princess Diana? Mother Teresa. Princess Diana, huge in her sphere, right? Great in her sphere. Piles and piles of flowers at her funeral and in front of her palace. Mother Teresa died the same day. And you know what? I don't think C.S. Lewis or Mother Teresa would have had it any other way. Because they would not have wanted to be drawn into this world's definition of greatness. Let's pray. Lord God, we, we take these stories that you've given us. We thank you so much for them. That you haven't just told us what to do and told us who you are, but you've shown us through the lives of these people by sending a person in the flesh that we could, we could see and watch and understand who, who didn't just only provide a model, but really did drink the cup of your wrath and pay the ransom for our sins. We ask, Father, that you would open our eyes to this kingdom. Reveal to us what our walk-away number is, that we might become less and less, so that you would be more and more in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm -hmm.